You're listening to Absolute AI. Conversations with the humans behind artificial intelligence, where data scientists, ML researchers, startup founders, and enterprise execs talk about cutting-edge innovations and unique challenges posed by this new technological frontier. Tune in for interviews with leading experts to anticipate trends before they emerge. Thanks for joining us on Absolute AI, conversations with the humans behind artificial intelligence. I'm your host, Melody Travers, and today I'm speaking with Howie Altman. Howie is the co-founder and CEO of Perceiver AI, where their mission is to elevate the science of artificial intelligence. They have developed a novel form of AI based on the foundation of genetic programming, which uses evolutionary engine to optimize through a process of natural selection. Howie is a business-driven technology executive and entrepreneur possessing proven expertise, an exceptional track record spanning 20 years, and the ability to align technology with business priorities. Welcome to Absolute AI, Howie. Great to be here, Melody. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for coming on the show. So uh, start with telling me a little bit about yourself and your journey into the world of artificial intelligence. Absolutely. Um, well, I, uh, I started off as a software engineer back in 2000 um, and very quickly realized um, that while I have a very deep passion for technology and software, that I was neither uh, as good as I wanted to be as a programmer, <laughs> uh, nor did I uh, did it really um, satisfy um, what I was looking for. And so mm -hmm. I quickly pivoted into more of the management and leadership side of things. And um, after that, uh, I held a variety of leadership positions at different firms, um, ultimately um, getting into the New York City tech startup scene. And that's where I found my true passion um, with respect to artificial intelligence, um, you know, neuroscience, psychology, um, cog human cognition, and ultimately artificial intelligence have always been a fascination of mine. Mm -hmm. And I was fortunate enough when I was working at Bridgewater Associates um, um, back several years ago. Um, I met a wonderful person named Milton Hernandez, um, who is now my um, co-founder and the CTO of Perceiver. And um, he had, even prior to joining Bridgewater, he had begun work as a garage project on Perceiver. Mm. And so this has been an idea that's been cooking for probably north of 15 years at this point. Wow. Um, it had to be put on pause at Bridgewater because of IP concerns. Mm -hmm. um, and then after that was no longer a concern, um, we decided to start Perceiver AI as a formal business and um, begin to commercialize it. Um, and so that's kind of been the journey. Awesome. Okay. I want to dive right into Perceiver AI and this new method of artificial intelligence that you guys call genetic programming, which uh, I had never heard of. So uh, we will go deep into that. Um, yes. But first, I want to set the scene for our listeners 
because this is really different. A lot of people are very familiar with um, deep learning and, um, you know, different types of machine learning. Uh, Could you just start with a brief description of the current AI landscape and touch on some of the problems that those current technologies are just not well suited for? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, as you said, um, everything that's out there today in terms of artificial intelligence, or I'm not going to say everything, we don't know 100% of the things that are out there, but (laughs) pretty much everything that's out there at least is all based on neural networks and deep learning. Those are the two most commonly used um, approaches today. Um, really because they're the only things that are available in a practical sense. Mm. Um, And what they are, and I'm sure everybody listening knows this, but neural networks were originally developed as the analogy to the human brain. How do you attempt to mimic how we as humans process information and solve problems? And it works phenomenally well for certain types of problems, Um, And those problems include things like image classification, language translation, anything where you're really trying to um, do pattern matching and recognition. Mm. And that is their strength. Um, In fact, um, they're exceptional at those, those tasks. The problem lies in that pattern matching and recognition is really their only tool. The only thing that they use to solve problems. And so it's sort of like asking an expert human to solve a very complex problem and telling them you can only use pattern matching. Hmm. They kind of look at you sideways um, because you would never do that, right? (laughs) You would use all of the knowledge you accumulated throughout your schooling, throughout your professional life. You would leverage research done by other people in the same domain, um, you would attempt to generate an algorithm or a set of sequence, a sequence of steps to solve a problem, even simple things like cooking eggs. Mm-hmm. Like imagine if you asked someone to cook eggs using just pattern matching um, <laughs> instead of following a recipe. Like it would be really, really difficult. Right. Um, and so using that analogy, you know, you can start to see um, where the current approach is. Um, that are not surprising that they came out first, right? Like if you look back at the Wright brothers, why did the plane look like an uh, look like a bird? Hmm. Because that's what we're familiar with, right? Why does uh, why does neural why do neural networks look like our brains? Because we're familiar with them. However, what neural networks don't do yet, and in theory, it's possible at some point in the future with a large enough neural network that they can accomplish all of these other tasks. Mm -hmm. They don't take into account all of the different ways that humans process information and solve problems. We are really good as humans at pattern matching and recognition. Um, We're very good at estimating things. Like that was very useful when we were, you know, hunter gatherers. Um, Is it a lion or (laughs) is it a friend? Like that's really important (laughs) to be able to decide very quickly with limited information. Right. but, but anyway, um, so, you know, when you try to apply neural network technologies, whether it's TensorFlow or Watson, any of the ones that are out there, they're all, they're all basically a commoditized version of the same technology now. Mm-hmm. Um, you can apply them to problems like optimization problems or like how to come up with a new recipe to cook eggs amazingly well. And they'll be better than nothing because they do right. add some benefit. But they leave a tremendous amount on the table, um, you know, without repeating what I said, like you can imagine like the human version of it, right? Um, If you ask a human, just use pattern matching to cook eggs. 
they can. Like they'll look at books and they'll find pictures and they'll try to recreate those pictures and it'll be okay, but it won't give you world-class eggs. Um, and that's where other approaches come in. Yeah. And so maybe for a minute I can like kind of raise it up a level to kind of describe our overall thesis and then where our product perceiver fits into that. Yeah. I just wanted to talk about a, a couple more problems that you, that you highlighted in our last conversation that I think are yeah. really important. Um, the black box problem where mm-hmm. you don't understand kind of the thought process that goes into these decisions. Um, and that's a that's a huge hurdle that we've talked about on the show a lot. Yes. The other problem is, of course, human bias and blind spots, which you kind of got into, right? If you, um, you know, we do this all the time. We think we're solving one problem and then it, it turns out that actually it's a totally different problem mm-hmm. or we've, you know, accumulated a bunch of data that, um, you know, because of our own biases or or blind spots, we make all these Absolutely. conclusions, and that wrecks models. You know, we talk about that too. Mm-hmm. And then that sort of reproduces. Or worse, you get dangerous models. Yes, or oh, yes, yes. And that, um, yeah, the worst case scenario. And and unfortunately, mm-hmm. we have lived through that. And I think yes. that um, propagates a lot of the fear that people have when mm-hmm. when thinking about artificial intelligence. Yes, those are excellent ones. Yeah. And and the last one that um, I was thinking about was that reproducibility problem. Mm -hmm. Um, So again, like replicating the results with like neural networks are so complicated that it's really hard to do that. So I I just wanted to highlight some of those because, again, those are such huge themes um, in artificial intelligence, uh, in the community in general, definitely on the show. And that's where I want to um, talk about where your technology is finding a different way to attack some of these problems. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, without reiterating the, the excellently articulated list you just, you just went through, um, those absolutely are some of the bigger problems. Another one that you didn't mention, I think, that we also address is you have to start from scratch every time mm-hmm. um, and first principles. So, yes, there are some very, yes. uh, let's call them um, nascent transfer learning techniques, but um, they don't do a really great job. And you're still basically rediscovering things from first principle each mm-hmm. and every time you train a model. Um, and so, you know, with all of those problems, it's what is really great, I think, about the future of AI at this point is that I would say about a year ago, um, the industry finally started to really come around and acknowledge this set of problems as a holistic issue yeah. that is blocking the progression and the more responsible use of artificial intelligence. Um, prior to that, you know, the biggest problem you'd always hear about is the black box issue where you can't yes. understand the thought process. And, you know, that really limits the applicability of neural network models in sensitive domains like where human life decisions are at play, um, like, you know, in healthcare. Watson yes. is amazingly well at diagnosing patients. Why didn't it actually catch on? Aside from that, IBM isn't particularly good at verticals. Like, that's not the reason, I don't think. I think it's because, you know, if you're a doctor, you're not going to be able to have confidence in relying on a technology that you can't understand. Right. It doesn't matter how good it looks. 
if you can't say it's because of these symptoms presenting in these ways and these are the weights and here are the you know historical data sets that were used to you know effectively um, replacing a doctor's you know research on a, maybe a difficult uh, to diagnose case. Um, it's not going to be very good. Um, it's not going to be very useful in the real world as much as theoretically it might be excellent. Mm -hmm. And so um, you know, I can touch briefly on how we address those now, and then we can get into the details. Um, but some of the beautiful things about genetic programming are as follows. One, um, there are no black box models. Everything is just code. And so what's happening in Perceiver is it's a program that writes other programs. Um, and it's essentially self-learning. And so it's just code. Like you can literally copy and paste the model anywhere. Um, and so you can inspect it. Um, anybody that's technically savvy understands exactly what's happening. Okay. Um, you also have full traceability through every generation of the evolutionary process as to how that solution was derived. Um, you know, that's, that's one. Yeah. Okay. You, you just threw out, um, a bunch of, uh, a bunch of terms that are pretty unfamiliar. Um, you, okay. you talked about, um, genetic programming, and natural selection. Um, let's just do like a tiny crash course on um, the theory behind natural selection, which, you know, people yes. generally know, yep. but how to apply that within the context of artificial intelligence. Absolutely. So I'll, I'll use a, a different but similar analogy to, to earlier. Mm -hmm. um, so whereas neural networks are the digital version of a human brain, at least the most basic version of it. Sure. Um, genetic programming is the digital version of evolution or Darwinism, natural selection, survival of the fittest, whatever you're used to hearing mm -hmm. about it as. And so, um, you know, in, in, in the biological world um, that we live in, um, I think everyone is quite familiar with the concept, at least at a high level, of natural selection. From generation to generation, the most successful... Um, organisms at life, really the goal of life is to propagate, right? And to pass on your genetic material from one generation to the next. And so the most effective organisms at that have the highest probability of breeding and therefore passing on their genetic material to the next generation. And you do that over the course of hundreds, thousands, millions of years, and you're able to have very sophisticated improvements to life. Hmm. Um, but, you know, on our time scale, it takes a really long time, right? It's anywhere from like days for flies to 20 to 30 years for humans per generation. Yeah. And so it takes a really, really long time. You think of a really common example that may not be always thought about. Like think about dogs, domesticated canines. Mm -hmm. um, the ancient Egyptians originally were the... Um, were the people that domesticated them. And they began this process of selective breeding to produce dogs that had the traits that were desired. And today, there are tons of different breeds. And while there are problems with inbreeding um, that lead to increased uh, incident rates of uh, disease and, and sure. um, you know, uh, defects and so on, um, in general, everyone's familiar. You know, you want a Labadoodle. How do you get a Labadoodle? Well, a Labadoodle... <laughs> 
may happen in nature accidentally because uh-huh. a Labrador and a Doodle really liked each other. Right. But that's a that's selective breeding, and so there are good um, examples or um, let's say instances of of Labradors and and uh, poodles, and people choose to breed them. That's what the dog shows are all about. It's mm-hmm. demonstrating the highest form of each pure breed so that those dogs are used to create the next generation. Yeah, and the the characteristics that um, you want in that dog. So if you have a, a water yes. dog or a hunting dog, that, that it's um, a confluence of different attributes. Uh, that yeah, attributes, traits, exactly. Yeah, traits that weave together into a, a better or a higher form. And so, yes, yeah, I think. Exactly. And so think of genetic programming as the digital version of that. Yes. Okay. But instead of dogs, it's programs. It's code. It's code blocks. Anything from a simple mathematical formula represented as code to multi-page complex code blocks that perform, um, you know, highly complicated tasks in order to deliver a defined outcome. And so that defined outcome, instead of having a really great family dog hmm. that also is wonderful at fetch and knows not to um, you know, do bad things to young children by accident, right. um, instead of that as the goal, your goal might be minimize the cost of fuel for an airline hmm. or um, – identify the most appropriate chemotherapy regimen for a human Mm. based on their genomics. Like, so as long as you can define it mathematically and encode, you can have any goal you want. Just like I want a great Labradoodle. I want this other thing. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to let Perceiver create that through a digital evolutionary process that mimics what's done with dogs through the course of millions or billions of generations but each generation takes a nanosecond. Wow. So uh, walk me through kind of the, the starting point. Like what, what do you guys start with? Because you said mm-hmm. that one of the great things about this method is that you don't have to start from scratch. Yes. So where are you starting yep. from? So, so we have our version of a genome, so a genome or a gene pool, um, essentially the set of building blocks is, is first created, um, out of the box, you get what's called a Turing complete set of building blocks and Turing complete just means that you have all of the programmatic elements like if thens, while loops, logical assessments, um, all that kind of stuff in order to create any arbitrary algorithm, any uh, von Neumann machine. A von Neumann machine is an arbitrary, it's a machine that can, uh, that can calculate and produce any arbitrary outcome. Um, In other words, all possible problems can be solved using that set of instructions and that machine that you create um, from that set of instructions. Um, and so you start with that out of the box. You have all those things. And so we're not asking Perceiver to figure out um, what the heck a while loop is. Like that would be crazy. Okay. But now is where it gets really interesting. On top of that, you can layer in anything that you can put in code. So uh, let's take a domain. Um, I don't know, uh, the stock market. Um, let's say you want to use it for investing. 
there's a ton of human knowledge out there about how the markets work. Hmm. We do not want Perceiver to be having to discover from first principle how you know quantitative finance works, right. okay. um, how market mechanics function, um, how um, you know any of those things. Right. And so we will take all of that human knowledge and codify it in that digital genome, in that pool of building blocks. We can also put in any proprietary knowledge. What that means is let's say I already have a solution. I already have a trading algorithm I'm happy with, Mm -hmm. but I think it can do way better. Mm -hmm. It's just going to take a really long time for my team to research that. I can actually put an entire solution into that genome an entire algorithm, and let Perceiver improve upon it. Wow, okay. And we've actually done that. We've actually even created neural networks by putting neural network building blocks into the genome, but that's a whole other conversation. (laughs) That was just experimental um, uh, and for fun, but it does work because it's really just a set of building blocks, and you imagine that canine analogy again. Yeah. You know, I'm going to have dogs that know how to trade, stocks, right? <laughs> and then I'm going to improve upon it by figuring out through an evolutionary process, how can I create a better, you know, canine trader? I'm taking the analogy too far, but you get the point. <laughs> okay. So you start with these, uh, this Turing complete set of instructions, um, mm-hmm. the first principle. So you have this basis and then mm-hmm. you run it through Perceiver AI, yes. and then it pumps out what? Like, what do you get in that first yep. round? So, so in the first, so basically, you could think of so each round is a generation. Yes. So just okay. think of it just like biology. Yes. Okay. So in generation one or zero, because we computer scientists love to always start at zero. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, in generation zero, what you get is a population of solution candidates. Okay. The population size is configurable because if you want to, let's say, constrain your budget because you want to not use more than X compute power or resources, mm-hmm. um, you can do so. But let's just take an arbitrary number. Let's say 100,000 members in this initial population. We generate 100,000 possible solutions from that set of building blocks, and we test each one against the fitness function. The fitness function is just like in any other model training. However, that fitness function is not limited in the way it is with deep learning. It is anything you can codify in code, just like the building blocks. So I can put in a complex fitness function. Um, One of the great things about that is using something like RMSE or uh, root mean squared error is a really poor way mathematically to identify an optimal solution. There are much better ways. Um, Some of them are proprietary to us and included in our patent application. But in general, um, you don't want to just look at error rates um, because you can imagine something like um, a common problem with genetic programming in the past for the 70 years that it's existed before we solved the previously intractable problems was called plateauing. Mm. And that means you get to a generation X And it's a solution that's viable, but it doesn't achieve your fitness target. And a solution that will achieve your fitness target or even exceed it is maybe only one or two or three mutations away. 
Okay. But you never get there because you're at a local maximum. And so if you use only error rate, you will never find it because you'll never break through that ceiling. And so we do other things like measure how much information gain there mm. is from generation to generation. And we look for stagnation. And if there is stagnation, we, we implement a mass extinction, just like with the dinosaurs. If you think about the dinosaurs, yeah. humans would have never emerged because they were at the top of the food chain. They outcompeted everything. But then when they became extinct, now we were able to uncover new evolutionary branches and ultimately we emerged. So that is, is what happens. You get the initial generation. You check it. For, well, first you check for garbage, right? You can imagine you create 100,000 possible organisms They're not all winners. made up of building blocks. They're not all going to work. They're all, <laughs> some of them are just going to die because they're non-functional. Right. So we enforce the grammar of the programming language that we use, which is scheme. It's a dialect of Lisp. Uh, for anyone that took you know, computer science classes in college, they'll remember that. Mm -hmm. The reason we use it is it's a very simple grammar to enforce. A grammar just means... How do we know if it's a functioning code block or not? Right. Um, and so we test for those. We throw out the ones that are basically dead. Mm -hmm. And we take the best performing ones from generation zero. And then we apply what's known as genetic operations to them in order to create generation one and two and three. Genetic operations are things like crossbreeding, random mutations, and other things that occur um, in the process of natural selection. Wow. That's so cool. And ultimately... Many, many, many millions usually of generations later, which could take you know, anywhere from a minute to a couple of hours, depending on how many millions or billions. Of generations? Um, of generations. Oh you God. will get uh, a solution that meets or exceeds your fitness target. If you don't, either your training data set is insufficient or you've described the problem poorly. Mm. And you can go through the audit log to see exactly where the process got messed up to know how to fix it. Wow, that's so helpful. And in my experience, um, those two issues that you talked about, either your training mm -hmm. data is, uh, you know, wonky, insufficient, um, mm -hmm. or you haven't identified the goal well enough. Um, but to figure that out within um, hours would be a huge saver yeah. in itself. <laughs> yeah. And you don't have to end with the bias point, like a human. So the job of a data scientist in this, let's just call it out for a minute, mm -hmm. is so elevated because today, unfortunately, the process is left to, there's about a dozen, maybe it's 13 or 14 now, I've lost track. I knew there were a dozen like a year ago, uh, deep learning architectures mm -hmm. that one has to choose from. And you pick one based on what you have seen before work for similar problems. Right. And then you construct a data set based on your best capabilities of bringing together um, a statistically meaningful set of different permutations of the thing you're trying to be able to pattern match. Mm -hmm. And whatever you get, you kind of get, and you backtest it, and you might improve it. You might want to pull in more data, especially in removing bias. Maybe you're like, okay, I need more um, you know, minority faces mm -hmm. so we don't have these facial recognition problems continuing that we've seen mm -hmm. um, or whatever the case may be. But then you kind of have what you have and there's no way to really look at it. You have millions of parameters and you don't know what the hell they are. So there's no way to tune them. Right. You're basically iterating on changing the data yeah. and seeing what happens. Yeah. With 
Perceiver, it does it all itself. It identifies the data relationships on its own, and it determines what is optimal. Hmm. And so just if I may for just 30 seconds bring it up to our thesis, because I want to say this um, quickly, you know, a term we've been trying to coin is intelligence architecture. Um, We believe that the universe contains an infinite number of intelligence architectures, and neural networks are one of them. It just happens to be the one that we're familiar with. If we went to another galaxy somewhere else with different life, and now I think pretty much everyone agrees these days that it exists, um, and we just haven't connected yet, um, we may not be able to communicate with them because they interact with the universe very differently from us because they evolved in very different conditions. It doesn't make it better or worse. It's just different. And so what Perceiver is really doing is it's coming up with the optimal intelligence architecture for the problem at hand. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, it doesn't require that level of human intervention. Mm. If the data is insufficient, you don't just get a bad model. You actually get a non-convergence and it doesn't produce a solution and it tells you that. Right. If it has a solution, then it is, we have not mathematically proven it yet. It's on the agenda. Um, it's quite a daunting task, um, but um, you're pretty much guaranteed to have the optimal solution given that data set um, because it's identified all of the weaker versions of that solution uh-huh. and has discarded them. And has, has mutated and evolved to that. Correct. And you can go back again and you can look at that. You can say, hey, 500,000 generations earlier it had a solution that we would have been happy with, but look at what it did. And do we like that or not? A human can look at it and say, you know what? I actually kind of like that earlier one for this reason. Mm. I don't know that that would be a good idea to do, but you could theoretically do it. And you can also take insights from your model that's generated, extract it because just code again, and put it back into the genome for your next experiment. Okay. So then, so you can just keep, you can basically keep iterating yeah. and then, um, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I, I think that that process of, like you said, um, mutations, extinctions, ge- like, mm-hmm. you know, generations of, of ideas to build a new architecture mm-hmm. is so fascinating. And, but I would love an example of, yeah. of one where when you were saying there's other speed, you know, there's other creatures on other planets, but I think there's other types of intelligences right here. Like we, we don't there, have there the are. Dr. Oh, Doolittle thing figured out oh, yet, yeah. you know? Like, no, there actually are, you know, the, the, the introduction <laughs> of the term neurodivergent, yes, right? That is, yes. that is us finally beginning to understand that a brain is not a brain. Yes. Is not a brain. They all are structurally similar or almost structurally identical, but the way in which they evolve, both through a combination of genetics and environmental constraints while they're learning and setting up the foundational elements, can be vastly different. And so like that, well, vastly within a certain, not compared to a completely different species, but, but certainly vastly different compared to one another. And, you know, the way that you perceive the world is literally guaranteed to be different from how I perceive the world. It's usually close enough so that we can communicate well. Right. But sometimes it's not. Absolute AI is sponsored by Inadata, a leading data engineering company. 
From startups to enterprise, Inadata delivers ground truth training data and customized AI services and platforms at scale. Learn more at Inadata.com. And I think that that uh, focusing on that is is so important because that my favorite philosopher, Hannah Arendt, said, um, we are all close enough that we can communicate, but different enough mm-hmm. that we have to communicate. Because mm-hmm. as you said, we we perceive the world in different ways. And so anytime somebody describes something, if I asked anybody else to uh, have this conversation with me, it would be a totally different conversation. That's and right. that is what is... Um, not to get sappy, but um, what I what I no, love about sappy. what I, what I yeah. love about humanity and um, creativity, and so because mm-hmm. that's kind of what we're talking about, right? Yeah, absolutely. The best leaders, the best problem solvers, know enough to know that is a fact, yes. and know enough to know they don't know. Yes, and to know enough, and well, not to know if to, to not not to know enough that would be clever enough to navigate that yeah. in order to achieve the goal. Like, I cannot solve a complex problem on my own. It is, it is, I mean, I guess, I mean, I can. Many (laughs) brilliant people do and have. But in general, it's a bad approach because you're missing out on a lot that you literally can't see. And, and you're still starting with some first principles. Those, even those geniuses, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, Einstein, he didn't invent math. You didn't, you know, no, right. uh, here's, <laughs> he had to start it's a beautiful somewhere. Analogy. So this is this, I'm going to give credit to my co-founder Milton completely for this analogy because I think it's so wonderful. Uh-huh. Um, and he came up with it. Look, if we dropped, well, I'm not going to say you, you know, if we dropped an arbitrary random person okay. um, in the middle of a forest with no tools, no map, nothing today, they'd probably survive more. You know, sometimes you hear that people get lost and do unfortunately perish, but in general, they'd probably be fine. Mm -hmm. Imagine doing that thousands of years ago. Um, They'd be toast, guaranteed. The reason why the person today is almost guaranteed to survive and the person thousands of years, well, let's not say thousands, let's make it more stark. Millions of years ago Mm -hmm. would have definitely perished. They didn't understand the use of tools. They didn't have fire. Um, the reason why we are so successful as a species is because we accrete knowledge over generations, right? Einstein didn't invent math. Without the foundational aspects of, aspects of math, he would not have been able to come up with his groundbreaking theories. Right. Um, and in the same way, if you ask an AI technology to come up with something groundbreaking and yet it doesn't have that foundation, good luck. <laughs> Um, and so that is something that, you know, using, going to an example that you asked about just quickly, um, and we don't have this recorded yet. We're going to be recording in the next couple of weeks because it's so cool. We gave a presentation to the uh, Princeton plasma physics lab a few weeks back, um, looking to collaborate on fusion R and D acceleration. And the thing that's most important to them is the ability of perceiver to infer yet to be discovered natural laws Mm. based on data. And so the demonstration we gave for them, and it'll become very clear what I mean in a second. We, we showed them how Perceiver is able to essentially reverse infer Kepler's second law, his orbital law, from a very limited set of planetary position data. Wow. They had already created a model using deep learning to predict planetary positions using historical data. Mm-hmm. 
But we show them that perceiver actually generates the mathematics. Wow. And so out of perceiver is not a model that predicts planetary positions. It's literally the code that reflects Kepler's second law with no prior knowledge of that math. Wow. And so so the idea then is to use it then to discover other discover the math yeah. for other natural laws. Yes, so like for fusion R&D it's all about plasma physics. It's about containing and controlling plasma in extreme conditions. And so it's all about material science, material science, right? How do you better contain and control plasma? It's all about understanding the mechanics and the behaviors under varied conditions that you can't first discover experimentally because you literally don't have the technology with which to do it yet. Mm. You're trying to first invent the technology with which then to run the physical real world experiment. <laughs> and, and so, you know, the discovering new laws about plasma physics would be the goal there. Wow. Oh, what a cool example. Well, um, please let me know when that video comes out. We will put it in our show notes for people to awesome. to watch. I, I feel like we went really in deep into um, genetic programming, uh, your work with Perceiver AI. Um, did I miss anything before before I move on uh, to – I have a oh. couple other questions <laughs> for you. Oh, I mean – you know, I could talk about this for days and weeks. So I think we did a really great job for uh, for this conversation. Right. Um, you know, maybe some, maybe just for thirty seconds, like some of the, let's call them more practical applications that we're commercializing mm -hmm. right now. For example, we entered into an, a, a partnership with a UK aviation software company called My Air Ops. We officially announced it um, a couple of months ago at. Um, at a convention in San Diego. And what we're doing is we're offering to both business and commercial airlines um, fuel optimization um, as well as assisted cruise scheduling products. Wow. So uh, fuel is a huge part of an airline's mm -hmm. cost. And there are many techniques to minimize the cost of it that are complex optimization problems, um, which Perceiver is exceptionally good at. Um, Crew scheduling is the biggest nightmare, and a lot of people watching this have experienced it personally, right? Your plane yeah. is delayed because the crew needs more rest, and there's no one else to take their place. Yeah. Um, it is a hugely complex optimization problem, and those are the types of things we're solving. Um, we're also working with um, one of the largest telecommunications companies in, in the U.S. to minimize their power consumption across their base stations and their data centers. Mm. Um, so these are, these are practical real-world applications, not just uh, researchy type things um, that Perceiver excels at. Yeah, and, and you talked about um, all of those examples are really interesting for, for this phase that we're in, in, you know, kind of world development in general, because we have so mm -hmm. many um, uh, climate-related goals. So um, optimizing mm -hmm. fuel, Absolutely. we have this problem where we have... Um, you know, there's some jobs that computers can do, and there's some jobs like being a flight attendant that a robot or a, or a computer just unfortunately can't do. And so, you know, we still have to sleep and eat and um, and rest. And um, yes. so, those are all things that I love. Those examples, and they're all uh, examples. We've had a lot of conversations about uh, carbon credits, about 
um, green initiatives, right? When we talk about uh, fuel savings, we absolutely also talk about CO2 reduction, CO2 emissions reduction. Um, so I love where you're going with that. Like it, that's exactly right. And all of that, you know, waste reduction in manufacturing, chemical manufacturing processes, these are all um, optimization problems. The world is full of them. They're everywhere um, once you start to see it through that lens. Well, I'm so excited to hear more uh, in the future. And I, this was just the the littlest taste introduction to our listeners. Um, maybe we'll have you all back in the future. Um, I would love that. To dive a little bit deeper. Um, Absolutely. I, I wanted to ask you, um, you've had such a, a fascinating and varied career as a founder, as a CEO, as a tech leader. Um and I was just wondering what some of your core interests are. Uh, what drives you personally as you're as you're um, navigating these uh, new frontiers? Uh, absolutely. Um, you know, I I've always been driven to trying to attack the most difficult problem I can get my hands on. Um, not always with success, <laughs> but you know, I think it's very cliche now that like, you know, in order to be really successful, you have to have some really big F ups in your past. Yes. Um, so that you learn because, you know, we still as humans have not solved that transfer learning problem. <laughs> like we can read books about it and it's just not the same as personal experience and really being in it. Um, and so like, I've been very fortunate to have a lot of great opportunities, um, with many different companies in many different domains. Um, but I would say that my real um, path to where we are today or where I am personally today began when I was at Bridgewater. Um, if anyone's familiar with Bridgewater, you know, the principles by Ray Dalio. Um, I was fortunate enough to be one of the senior managers that got to work on the first version with him after work every week. Um, you know, there are things that I think we didn't get quite right, right? We didn't quite get human empathy right. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a lot better there now. Um, but, but in general, it's an amazing experience because of the, the, the quality of people that I got to be surrounded by and got to work with directly on an everyday basis that I would have never in a million years met even otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, I was there for a, almost eight years, um, and I held a variety of, of senior tech management roles and learned a tremendous amount about myself and was pushed through my own evolutionary process by the people around me um, who were just exceptional. Um, and, and once I got into the New York City tech scene, you know, kind of that, that same vigor, uh, you know, came through and, and I looked for opportunities to work on really great products. Um, I, you know, again, like I, I think it was you know, there's always a good amount of luck involved, like, right, to have the right opportunities present themselves. But I think, you know, one of my core tenets is I think too many people make the mistake of, well, one, not everyone is able to see the opportunities. Um, mm. But for those who can see the opportunities, I think many people um, are paralyzed a bit by fear and, and don't seize them the way that, you know, lots of T-shirts say you should. Um, but, um, you know, I think I've, I've never been risk averse and I think that's been a really big strength. Um, but of course, risk aversion without being able to thoughtfully have a plan B is sometimes dangerous. So it's all a balancing act that, you know, I'm constantly learning about and, and improving upon, but you know, that really the core has been 
a drive to find the most complicated problems because that's why I was originally impassioned about technology and software. Software is the only medium that you can invent something from scratch with no other tools but a computer. Like you don't need um, material. You don't need yeah. a big team of people. You can literally sit in a room and create something that never existed before and solve a problem that's never been solved before. And that to me is really, really exciting. Um, and, and more recently, um, you know, as my co-founder and as other business partners and I have started and are running now three different technology companies, this is one of them. Um, the other most important principle that we have is, is the people. Um, and it's the quality of the people. And we do not have anybody that we will bring into our inner circle that doesn't share our core values, share our uh, way of thinking about um, the pursuit of excellence and the pursuit of something fantastic that's never been done before. And I mean, not only has that been extremely worthwhile to, to um, adhere to in terms of like the outcomes, but it's, it's also just made life so much better. <laughs> like having this core group of people that you literally know you have each other's backs to take the next hill, no matter how hard it is, no matter how much you fight with each other because you disagree violently, <laughs> um, you know, violently within reason, right. Right? Um, <laughs> not physically violently, hopefully. Um, I don't think that's, it's never come to that, but you know, and being able to really like clean that up and repair it immediately after, because you know that the intention mm is pure and you know that it's coming from a place of love and a place of trying to achieve something that's really freaking hard. Um, it's, it's just, it's been really, it's been really a beautiful experience. Oh, that's so great. Um, all right. I have my, my last question. Uh, it's a little bit of a goofy one. Um, <laughs> if you were to write a sci-fi novel about the year 2042, what does the oh, world man. look like and have the robots taken over? Well, I don't think the robots <laughs> are necessarily going to take over. It occurred, it occurred to me recently that nobody's really building robots like that are being used for anything practical. And so that might be another business idea coming soon. <laughs> I don't know. Um, like we have all these cool robots that can like dance and stuff, but like, you know, outside of manufacturing, like factory lines, like, there really aren't robots that are doing a lot and we have the technology. So I'm not really sure why no one's building them. So I don't really think I want to do that, but like if anyone's out there wants to build robots for good purposes, like I think that would be a brilliant idea and you get a ton of funding very easily. Yeah. I'm very, I'm a huge fan of my robot vacuum. <laughs> we call him Rob. He is great. <laughs> I'll admit, I'll admit I got a knockoff one and it's crap. Oh, so no. I need to upgrade to a real one. Uh, I just wanted to try it and like it just keeps like cleaning the same damn spot uh, over and over again. Oh, no. uh, there, that's a poor algorithm. <laughs> uh, so, so anyway, um, like I don't look. I I don't know where to even start with that question. So I'll try my best, like in a couple minutes or less. Which is, I you know the the technology like the technology path the technology path that we're on is going to continue to explode. Right, like it's it's exponential. Like the curve is it's exponential. And I think that once a technology like perceiver catches on, hopefully perceiver, um, you know, 
and I'm sure there'll be competing products over the next several years as well. There are thousands of smart people working on solving um, neural algorithmic reasoning now. Um, I'm not sure that's the best path. I think you know our solution that does it today, I think, is a more fruitful path. And I think that there are going to be other people endeavoring to uh, recreate what we've produced. And you know, there's enough pie to go around for everybody. <laughs> so with all of that, I think it's just going to continue to explode and you know, once we, as a, as a, as a civilization, like break through this current AI barrier that we are faced with, um, and hopefully we'll also marry it with very good, responsible and ethical AI use, um, because that's a big fear that I have. Um, I think, you know, we're going to be in a place where we have materials and we have, medications and we have vaccinations and we have food production techniques and and we have all of these types of um, solutions that are very needed especially as population growth continues on the planet Mm -hmm. Um, like I think the world is going to look very different but at the same time like we're still going to have our humanity right so we're not going to be that different but we're going to be empowered in the same way that you know couple, you know, several hundred years ago, even royalty didn't have indoor plumbing, right? And we look at, you know, that today and it's like crazy. Yeah. So, you know, in 2042, 2042, I imagine we'll look back and say, wow, the AI and the technologies and the fact that we couldn't provide enough food for everybody at that level of population they had back then was nutso. Um, so I think we'll have a lot of that in hand. Um, though if we get outside the technology realm, I personally um, uh, am not clear yet on the best political solution. Mm. Um, that's beyond the scope of this podcast, mm-hmm. but I think that's where our biggest risk lies as a as a as a as a species. Like, I don't know, my personal thoughts. I'll put it out there. Maybe I'll get hate mail for it, but like, you know, I think it's probably true that democracy in its current form, uh, its current forms around the world, don't scale. Mm sufficiently to the level of population that we're getting to. But at the same time, I really um, detest um, the fascist uh, solutions that exist in certain parts of the world. So I don't have the answer. Um, Lots of smarter people than me are thinking about that answer. Um, And I really hope that even in some small way that me and, and, you know, my colleagues are able to influence a path that leads us to a solution that is, um, you know, that, that leads us in a better direction. Um, so I think that's really where the biggest difference is going to be. And I have no clue yet what that's going to look like in 2042. Well, that is exciting, right? I mean, that's what it is to be human, right? To not know what's going to happen in 20 years. Uh, and maybe I was, as you were saying that I was like, "Hmm, I wonder if you put a goal into perceiver for, for political theory, maybe there's one we haven't, uh, 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 we haven't figured out yet. Okay. <laughs> it's on the list. Um, we actually, it's funny because we just completed a, uh, uh, so we, what's running in production now is what we call Perceiver 1.0. Um, it's certainly not 1.0 in the sense of like how the product itself evolved over the last 15 years, um, but it's 1.0 in terms of all the commercial applications that we're using it for. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have just completed a Perceiver 2.0 that is not in production yet and that we're in the process of testing. And we've, 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 um, given it a tremendous uh, number of new capabilities. Um, for example, uh, self-goal-seeking the fitness function. Mm. 
um, and, and other things like that where, you know, what if, let's just take this extreme example of political science, right? What if the solution is something that we can't actually conceive of yet? Right. And so we don't know how to describe the goal. So we give it a goal that's kind of in the neighborhood of what the right goal is, but it's the wrong goal. Mm. Today, with 1.0, it'll fail. With 2.0, it will not fail. It will try to solve the closest problem it can find a solution for mm. on its own with no human intervention. So there's a lot of exciting things to come. Um, and um, we would want to be able to do exactly what you just said. And we're on a path to, I believe, creating a technology that can do that. I don't know what the time horizon on it is until we see it. Right. But um, it's, certainly, it's certainly part of the bigger vision. Amazing. Also, part of the bigger vision is creating what we're dubbing artificial culture. Uh, the same way that humans accrete knowledge over generations, we need that to happen with AI. Hmm. And we need a collective, a central hub of knowledge that's created through these evolutionary processes. Hmm. Not proprietary information from the people that are using it, but the natural laws that come out of them. Hmm. Because as I'm sure a lot of people well know, you have a lot of things for just taking a very obvious example from behavioral economics there are lots of laws in behavioral economics that apply to a tremendous number of domains. Um, but if you solve a problem in behavioral economics with an AI technology, you're never going to apply it to anything else. And so we need a way to take those laws, put them into a central repository, and then use those as an extension of the building blocks mm. so they can be experimented with in different domains to see where they apply. Once we do that, the learning curve, not learning curve, that's the, that's the opposite way, the, um, the building of knowledge curve is going to become exponential, and then we're in a completely different world. That reminds me of, that's on the road of, this, uh, <laughs> of this book that I read a couple of years ago called Range, and um, one of the key theses in the book was that a lot of the most amazing inventions are not actually new inventions. They're just, uh, they're laws. Like you said, there are things that people figured out in one domain and you have that person that is able to uh, live in two different domains and see the solutions in one and apply them to another. So I, uh, and there's amazing examples of that. I'll put that book in the show yes. notes as well, but, um, absolutely. Now imagine doing that automatically yeah. with no boundaries on how much time it can take. And with each attempt taking a fraction of a second, and it doesn't care either. It's not biased. It doesn't care. It doesn't care if it uses this law or this law, depending on who invented right. them. It's indifferent. Yeah. It just is trying to find a solution that transfers. And it's doing it 24-7 on a huge amount of infrastructure. And it's just constantly spitting out, here's a new thing that works. Here's a new <laughs> thing that works. Here's a new thing that works. All right, Howie, this was so fun. We could talk for hours. Um, unfortunately, yes, we got to wrap this one Very up. Very enjoyable. <laughs> I, I do want to give you the chance to wrap up with some calls to action. How can people reach out and learn more about you and Perceiver? Oh, sure. Um, you know, you can just go to our website, www.perceiver.ai. 
Um, feel free to Google my name, like, um, you know, or, or just perceive your AI and it'll come up at the top. Um, and you know, there's some information on our product there. There's a way to get in touch with us. There's small bios about us and links to our uh, LinkedIn profile. So that's probably the best way. Um, and, uh, you know, just to throw a plug in, if, uh, you know, our, one of our other businesses is, um, a product engineering consultancy. Um, we are based in the Dominican Republic and, um, we uh, provide a teams to generally New York City startups to build and scale their products. We're working with a wonderful portfolio of top-notch startups today, and we're growing all the time. And, uh, you know, that's something that um, we really love doing when we find partners that we can work with where they're building awesome products we didn't think of, but we get to work with them um, on those. Um, it's really fantastic, and we have a really, uh, you know, great uh leadership team that we've put in place there over the years and uh that's another thing but yeah procedure ai is the real focus here and it's where i'm spending most of my time these days and um it was just really lovely to talk to you melody it was it was really fun excuse me and uh you know just had a really great time me too howie thank you so much for tuning in thanks for tuning in we make this program for listeners like you So if you enjoyed this episode, share it with your community, write a review or drop us five stars. Every little bit helps spread the word. See you next time.